0: Checked out the new Hyundai Elantra. How was it? I have to say, it was a pretty smooth operator. Are you sure you're talking about a car? (laughs) It's a tech lover's dream. The digital key feature lets you lock and unlock the doors. And get this, with dynamic voice recognition, I can control the temperature, roll down the windows, and change radio stations just by talking.
1: I know you like that. (laughs) You too can talk to the all-new
2: Hyundai Elantra. Learn more at HyundaiUSA.com. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details.
0: Faithlife are the makers of Logos Bible Software and a cloud-based integrated ministry platform which includes ministry tools for worship presentations, online donations, and much more. They have 2 million registered users and are trusted by more than 10,000 churches. Faithlife is hiring full-stack developers and the majority of positions can be worked remotely. They have an average tenure of five years, they have over 200 Glassdoor reviews, averaging 4.7 stars, and it comes with benefits such as a competitive salary and unlimited vacation time. Apply to Faithlife today and write code that matters. Go to faithlife.com forward slash careers. That's faithlife.com forward slash careers. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Jamie and I am your host. This very first segment features Tristan Norman. Tristan Norman is the head of Creative Insights for Getty Images America. So I'm really excited to actually do this interview myself with Tristan Norman. So If you're interested in learning about the work culture at Getty Images, then you definitely don't want to miss that segment. In our second segment, Ryan is interviewing Damon J. Gillespie. The newest show on Netflix called Tiny Pretty Things is coming soon, and I think a lot of people are going to be talking about this show. I saw it myself, loved it. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Jamie and I'm your host. Yes, I'm actually your host. I know that usually you hear me do the intros and then I toss it off to either Angelica or Ryan, but you will be hearing me for this segment of the podcast. And listen, I'm really excited uh, to have you guys hear this guest this week because I think you're going to get a lot of good information, uh, some gems of knowledge and wisdom, Um, And she's going to be talking about a great company that I think a lot of us are familiar with. And maybe if we're not familiar with the uh, specific details of the company, we've at least seen a lot of photos uh, that this company has produced over the years. And I'm talking about Getty Images. And I'm honored to speak with Tristan Norman. And Tristan Norman, she is actually the head of creative research over at Getty Images, Americas at Getty Images, cause you know, Getty Images is global. So we gotta throw that in there. Um, but she's the head of Americas for creative planning and insight at Getty Images. That is a handful, Tristan. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much
1: for having me. I'm excited to be here. And what an introduction.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. So um, you know, I always like to start by asking people what their origin story is. So, how did you even get into this line of work and and what led you to specifically um, choose the journey of going into Getty
1: Images. Oh goodness! I mean, how I got into this line of work, stumbling around in the dark. <laughs> um, I didn't have a very straightforward uh, route path, if you will, into um, my role today um, as the head of Creative Insights. I started out actually when I when I started at college. I wanted to be. I had this dream, this vision. Uh, that I was going to be a fashion PR girl. I watched every episode of The Hills. I watched all of the city. I was like a diehard fan. I loved Kelly Patron. And I was like, that is what I want to be. And then I went to school. I'm I'm kind of like that middle of the generation millennial. So I went into school right around the time, like while I was in there, probably my sophomore and junior year was the Great Recession. And Mm -hmm. that changed that whole thing up for me because I realized that a lot of my friends, a lot of the people that were graduating, um, you know, were not able to get jobs. And even though they were graduating with God knows how much debt, um, they weren't able to get full-time employment. And I was like, well, this comms major situation is not going to work. So I need to switch gears a little bit. And I ended up going into the business school and going into marketing and you know, up until I joined Getty Images, I actually was um, had a pre- pretty traditional marketing background. Well, not traditional. I, um, you know, I was worked in consulting. I so I worked on the research side of consulting. Um, I did you know marketing for actual brands, and then I moved into the agency world. And I spent the last my last three years before joining Getty in the agency world. So I, and then I just like stumbled into this. It just so happened that some really messed up things happened in my last year at the, in the agency world, which I'm sure is probably shared experience of any black person working at an ad agency. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, you know, on a whim, saw this job thought it wasn't a real thing because it was like one of those indeed applications where that's native to indeed and you actually have to sit so it's not through getty's site and so i submitted the application thinking like oh this isn't a real thing whatever this job seems the coolest um but it's not a real thing and then i got you know the email from the recruiter and the rest is kind of history and I, i fell into it i i stumbled into it i am not the traditional profile um, that they usually hire for a role like this up until that point. Um, I didn't have a traditional art background. I didn't have a traditional photography background. And that's really um, where they had lived as a department, as a function. And mm-hmm. But I was really passionate about it. And I have a pretty encyclopedic knowledge about art and <laughs> pop culture in general. So that really helped me get the leg up. But also they were moving into this direction of being really thoughtful and strategic about how they... Um, approach their content. And I was just kind of that puzzle piece that they needed to put into place.
0: That's an amazing story. I I feel like the trajectory of everybody's career or even like life happened during that economic recession oh that happened back then. Because that that's the same, that was kind of my story too. I, I was living in New York and then the recession happened and couldn't afford to live in New York anymore and had to move back home. And then completely, um, you know, just shattered everything that I thought I wanted to do and um, ended up, you know, becoming an entrepreneur and creating the platform that I have today. So um, it's interesting how life forces you into making those kinds of decisions. And I'm sure a lot of people are dealing with that now with the the current uh, recession that we're in. Um, but you know what I, I? I'm curious to know your your specific role because you you have a very unique role at Getty Images, mm-hmm. and it's it's described as a hybrid between a strategist and a creative director. Can you explain to our listeners
1: exactly what that means? Oh, sure. So yeah, I. I'm a traditional, very traditional strategist where I come from, you know, that agency world of, you know, that understanding of what that role looks like. So looking at data, um, taking large sets of data and distilling it down to insights and stories and human truths uh, that will be anchoring, um, you know, the campaigns, the projects, the brands work on. Um, and then the creative director part is something that I had to step into I need to I needed to figure out how to become more confident in making those decisions as I, I grew into this role over the last three years but it really is about making sure that from an, you know an aesthetic point of view a style point of view you have know, a full understanding of what something needs to look like um, and so we um, I work very closely with our you know um, our uh, imagery team, our content creators, um, to help them understand. Okay, well, here are here is what's backing up. Here's what's grounding the information, the data that's grounding why we're moving in a specific direction. And here's what you need to do with that. And I'm helping them shape that from, you know, con, uh, you know conceptually to, you know, casting and location, wherever they need to be, making sure that they understand and, um, from a holistic sense, you know, how, what they should be reflecting, how they should be reflecting and why it matters. And it's the best I, sometimes I still have to pinch myself. Like, how did they let me in here? Like, What did I do? Did I hoodwink hoodwink them into giving me a job and letting, giving me this power, much power. It's crazy.
0: It was was meant to be. I, I, I'm a strong and firm believer that everything happens for a reason. So how long have you been working? In this in this role, yeah, um, it has been. Yeah, it'll be
1: three years in January. Actually, started um, the day January second in two thousand eighteen. So almost three years for sure. It feels like a decade, though. That's how much has happened.
0: <laughs> I mean, this last eight months feels like a decade. I mean, honestly,
1: it's like a decade plus century. All that. It's so many emotions. So many things have happened. It's just like. I remember on, um, you know, the, on the quote unquote internet, their um, early, early days, they were referring to early days of the pandemic as season one of the pandemic, which was really funny. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, I remember when I first started as a blogger in 2012, finding stock images of black women and specifically nerdy black women Mm -hmm. wearing glasses, it was like finding a needle in a haystack, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and the obviously the landscape has definitely changed. But how much has the landscape changed in stock photography with respect to diversity, and how does Getty Images facilitate changing that landscape?
1: I mean, it's changed. I it's changed dramatically even since I've been here. But I will say, since twenty twelve. For sure, it's evolved away from the invisibility of you know black women, um, but also it's evolved away from I don't know you know the classic image of that woman eating salad stock image that we've moved away from that we've moved away from some mm-hmm. of the those really classic memes that you still see circulating on the internet. Um, but I think what and and it's been great because we've been really focused as a business way before. A lot of these conversations have been happening um, about representation and making sure we we are using our platform, our power, our reach for good. I mean, we work with the biggest, all of the biggest name brands in, in, in around the world, and so we understand it's very important to put uh, the co- make sure that there's the content available um, that represents the world as it is. And so um, we started with our lean in collection back in. Uh, I'm just going to say five or six years ago, which was a partnership with Lean In Foundation to reimagine gender roles. And that was kind of that first foray into that space um, for us as, you know, to be organized around that as a business in like a collection format. And we've had so many partnerships over the years um, with, you know, Refinery29 and our No Apologies collection, thinking about body size and making sure we're inclusive and thoughtful about the experience of women. Um, You know, Muslim Girl, which is, you know, reimagining, you know, young Muslim women or everyday Muslim women um, in the U.S. And then we had our big, big um, campaign um, in, oh gosh, 2018? Or no, sorry, <laughs> 2019. I um, Everything is blurring together. Um, our project in collaboration with Dove and the creative collective Girl Gaze around, um, you know, reimagining women, non-binary people, femmes, et cetera, um, and it is actually um, all of the photographers, the creators were also women, non binary and femmes. So I think that, um, so that was really, I mean, that was. So transformative for us, but then in that same year, we also launched the disability collection. We launched my little baby project, the Nosotras collection, which is about, um, you know, reimagining the Latinx community here in the United States. And we've just been, um, made you know, we've tried to put our money where our mouth is because we Mm -hmm. know that you can't really be what you can't see. You know, Marion Wright Edelman said that. So I think that it's important. We understand the responsibility that we have and I've been excited to be a part of it. That said, um, you know, there's still more change that needs to happen. Um, there's still a lot of work to be done. And I'm actually curious. How, I mean, you're still, obviously, you still run your platform. Have you seen change?
0: Oh, yeah. yeah. What? Way, way more change. I mean, uh, you know, quick story with Black Girl Nerds. When I first started the blog, I typed in the term Black Girl Nerds and Google Images, and there were images of white women wearing glasses with black frames. So, um, yeah, because, you know, it it was even the term itself wasn't even um, something that you could find on the internet. And certainly Google Images, you know, saw saw it as an afterthought. Mm -hmm. Um, So now when you type in Black girl nerds, obviously you you see images that pop up from my site, but now you do see images of Black women, you know, not only wearing glasses, but Black women as gamers, as cosplayers, Mm -hmm. live action role players, Mm -hmm. um, women in the STEM fields. um, And I think that that's great that we're now finally having this, large, uh, diverse, vast platform of images that we're seeing at least, you know, in Google search engine for once. Um, because I, I remember just seeing hyper sexualized images of black women, right. even when you just typed in black women. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it it's definitely changed a significant deal. And it's made it a lot easier for me to be able to look for the images um, that I need to you know, if I do need to look for a stock photo. Um, so it's great. But like you said, there there's definitely a lot more work to do. The work oh, yeah. is not finished.
1: Because
0: <laughs> um, we, Yeah, we, we do see uh, a lot of stereotypical images. And, and I'm curious to know, you know, representation, it, it's important. It shapes who we are. It shapes who you become. And when we see ourselves reflected, that has an impact. So what is Getty Images doing to shatter negative stereotypical images?
1: Well, I mean, I, <laughs> I mean, I can speak for myself and, and the work that I'm doing at Getty. Um, you know, I think everything that we do as a business is trying to shatter sort of negative stereotypes. And I, and that's sort of embedded in the work, but I will say that the other thing that we're trying to with Our partners with our customers that actually have the conversation often a lot of times, especially knowing that the structure, the makeup of the you know the composition of these teams in a corporate setting are often they're not they are not reflective of the communities that they're trying to reach. Right, so we're Mm -hmm. trying to embark on this really, um, you know, with all the best of intentions, trying to represent certain communities, and yet no one knows where to start, what we're trying to do is actually provide them with the tools, with the guidance, with everything that they need to actually know how to start, um, how to have these conversations. Um, And we're naming some of these things explicitly. I like to say when I talk to um, the clients that we work with that it's about naming our monsters, and we don't know what we're up against. If we don't know the shenanigans that we are solving for, we're correcting for, then we're never going to make any progress. But that's where we get into that, you know, realm, that area of being really tokenistic. For example, um, that's where we get into things like where, um, you know, we're checking this box of showing a black person, but yet that black person is, you know, someone who is super light skinned, um, and they are, you know, they have that three C curl pattern, and we're like, yep, done. And and that's it, or that you know. I think about that recent, um, Burt Spees example. You know, I don't know if you heard about the controversy about, um, you know, the color, I guess this image lived on their website. Um, and so it was in the context of it was a, a um, you know, I guess a piece of clothing, a set of pajamas, or something like that. And they had an image mm-hmm. of different families throughout their website. Um, and I'm not sure if this is truly the case, um, but they someone um, flagged that they saw only this black this black woman, the only black woman on that um, website, and she was a single mom with her daughter. And so that is, while that is okay in isolation, when you think about it in the context of, um, you know, the wider kind of stereotypes, the tropes, you know, around mm. black women. and around um you know the black fam- uh, black family structures um again it is totally okay um to be a single parent you know i was raised by a single parent but i think there's a harm if that's the only thing that you're seeing um with with a certain from a certain community or a certain group of people so we're trying to have those brave conversations about Things like that. And, you know, or, you know, you talked about being sexualized. The one thing that when was driving me behind developing in the socialist collection was about the fact that Latin uh, Latino people were often are often sexualized, both, you know, men, women, whomever. They're often sexualized, no matter what context. It was so Unsettling to look at some of the ads that you'd see in recent times that just have for no good reason um, really was about that objectification and that was something that we have to actively disrupt even in the language that we use in describing that com- um, the community. So, I think what I'm excited most excited about is being able to get to be given kind of carte blanche by the organization to do this work. Um, and, you know, and to have their full support in that, um, because it's important. And I think the organization understands it's important.
0: I'm curious too, you know, you had tapped on colorism because one of the things that I've noticed heavily in the black community, um, throughout the years, when it comes to imagery is I've always noticed when it comes to showing a black family, they'll always show a dark skinned mother and father and then they'll show mixed children i don't i don't know what that's about i mean is that something that you also see in the latinx community as well
1: Oh, in the Latinx community, you just see a quote, unquote, type, you know, they have olive skin, they have long, dark hair, and that's about it. Um, so I don't think we ever go that far, above that's we've moved away from that in the Latinx mm-hmm. community a little bit. And I think what we, I personally am really proud of the progress we've made in terms of representing um, Latin culture and Latin families. Um, But you still kind of see it isn't, you know, colorism beyond that. It's more that there is sort of um, a defaulting to um, either um, very lighter skin, mestizo like Mexicans, because Mexicans make up the majority of the American um, uh, Latino population um, and Mm -hmm. erasing the rest of that world uh the rest of the community. Like I think the percentage of um Mexican Americans is somewhere around the high sixties, maybe sixty-nine percent I wanna say, but then that still leaves like thirty-one <laughs> percent of uh of the population, which is ha- is very kind of um has very it's very diffuse that 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 remaining thirty percent. You have Puerto Ricans, you have Colombians, you have um, dominicans you have cubans you have um venezuelans and so on and so forth and so and and what you don't often see even like you don't even get to have that conversation about seeing a darker skin latino person even though we know that we exist you know so i think um it's an interesting thing you bring up because obviously there is colorism in the uh, in the community but i think the other thing is that um getting brands to understand that is not always so straightforward that said um target has had i don't know if you've seen Tar- any of the recent target commercials but they've had some really really beautiful stuff this year uh, around mm-hmm. the holidays showing um you know it's a very clear um uh You know, Latino community it's in Spanish and they have them um, people of all kind of races because remember um, Latinx is an ethnic identifier it is not a racial one so it was really cool to see the representation of all skin tone shades different types you know especially seeing Black um, Latinx people in that commercial.
0: Yeah, Target, Target's been doing a good job too um, with respect to people with disabilities. I've been seeing that Amazing. also yeah. with their commercials. So they've, they've been definitely doing a good job. Um, I wanted to also find out about the work culture over there at Getty Images. Often we hear about companies talking about diversity, but their workforce doesn't often reflect that. So is uh, Getty Images, is, is it a diverse workplace? <laughs> Am I putting you on the spot by asking you that question?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, they're probably going to kill me for laughing so hard. Um, uh, No, I mean, I will say that Getty is um, definitely making strides toward being a more inclusive and representative workforce. Um, You know, we've had a lot of amazing, amazing people coming in over the last... Year or so, even in spite of the fact that we've been we um we have a pandemic. I'm currently hiring, so if anyone wants to work with me, if you're based out of LA, happy to look at your resume. Um, so there's been a lot more opportunity, I think, for um, communities who are not represented at Getty. Um, but the reality is, listen, it's a part. You know, Getty exists is it's a corporate. Organization that exists within a system that was set up to uphold, to prize, to champion, um, you know, white male voices, and that's it. So, and we are, as an organization, trying to contend with that reality and actively disrupt that reality. And so, what I can say um, is that. The organization, our CEO, who is a white man, is also very much a champion of making sure we build this inclusive workplace and that we make this the best place to work for employees, particular um, from marginalized identities. Whether you know you are um, from a, from a community of color, whether you're disabled, you know, whether you are non-binary, whether you're trans, you know, whatever your background that you feel you know, you feel welcome and, you know, we're actively doing what we can to, to bring that sort of talent into the into the room.
0: Well, this question maybe can help, um, maybe Getty can help out with this next question I'm gonna ask you, because it it seems like Black photographers and, and photographers of color, period, um, still represent a small portion of the industry. So why do you think that is and, and what can be done to change that?
1: Do they represent a small portion of the industry?
0: I don't I I don't see many black photographers, you know, when you hear about who is shooting on the cover of Vanity Fair and all these big magazine publishers. I don't see many Black photographers' um, names out there. Yeah,
1: but that's the the magazines. That's the fault of the gatekeepers. There are so many amazing, amazing Black photographers that are out here presently doing work. I mean, I think about, Mm -hmm. um, you know, um, oh gosh, now I'm going to start. I I think about Dana Scruggs. I think about, um, you know, uh, uh, Miles Lofton. I think about um, Joshua Kissy. I think about... um, gosh, like, I'm uh, uh, sorry, I'm like on the spot. I think there's so many amazing, amazing creators out there who are working, um, who are doing amazing things on their own platforms. And, you know, it's just really up to the gatekeepers to say, actually, you know, I, I, at this point, it's like, uh, you know, I think it's, it's just irresponsible and Tyler Mitchell also, you know, so I think it's just irresponsible for, um, you know, these, you know, these publishers um, to not be um, welcoming in and making this a matter, you know, uh, hiring a black photographer as a matter of course, because there's so many amazing, amazingly talented people out there. Um, So I, I, and, you know, and even people that we work with. So I think, um, you know, I would, Definitely challenge them. I would challenge anyone who's working at a, you know, a big um, publication um, to think about that because it's not a, it's kind of like the conversation that we have with talent, right? With hiring and recruiting um, Black talent in general. Oh, when you hear them say, oh, it's a pipeline issue. It isn't. (laughs) you know like black people um you know this the millennial generation that's what isn't that like aren't we the most educated generation (laughs) you know so far and I think that there's not a lack of talent you know there's so many um really really and that you don't need to have an education to be uh really talented and offer something in the world but um there's so much talent out there And you know, it's just—are you really looking for it? Are you really challenging yourself to stop looking to your left, to the community, the networks that you are comfortable with, um, to give that opportunity to?
0: Yeah, yeah. I and I only bring that up because you know, there was that big story with um, Tyler Mitchell, who was the first African American to shoot for the cover of Vogue Mm -hmm. when he shot uh, Beyonce on the cover, and it's what 125 history yeah. <laughs> and it's like that that's crazy that um in 125 years vogue has never had a black photographer um so
1: Sh- shenanigans <laughs> yeah. i just think that's shenanigans it's yeah. it's really like you know because they were going to the same the usual suspects you know the annie Lito- yeah. the um Mariana- annie Lito- uh, yeah like the mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Demarcelet, who all of these people are, are talented, but they were not. You know, they had they had cornered, basically locked in um, their relationship with um, you know the powers that be at Vogue, and no one was being let in. Um, and there's yeah. so many things that are happening. Um, in the publishing industry, um, I hope that this is, this conversation, the one thing that's been really amazing coming out of this conversation, I mean, there's so many things, amazing things that have come out of the last six months, Um, but I mean, look at all the covers that are coming out right now, you know, like, and so many, and Beyonce is always tapping, for example, amazing talent, talent, lending her name, her platform to, you know, think about, I'm thinking about the British Vogue cover that she just did with that um, young woman whose name is escaping me right now. Um, But I think something is changing. They're starting to realize that they cannot get away with this anymore because everyone is looking. And so that is heartening, you know, and I I think that we will hopefully, hopefully, fingers crossed, please (laughs) get to a point where we can move away from, you know, these firsts for Things that our lives are surrounded by, you know, like it just seems so silly for the first vote cover to have just happened, what, two years ago? It's crazy.
0: Yeah, it's crazy. And we're still hearing about firsts in 2020. It just blows my mind. Um, But yeah, I mean, I I love what you're doing. I think that um, this conversation is so needed. And I'm really glad to have had the pleasure of talking to you today where can our listeners learn more about you and the work that you're doing over at Getty Images? Uh,
1: yeah. I mean, we, you can uh, check out creative We're talking constantly about this work, about um, how visual vocabulary is changing. We've just posted on the um, our year in review, which is really a look back through our editorial uh, content from news, from sport to entertainment, um all throughout this massive um we crazy year, um and we're just always talking about this stuff, and yeah, I'm, i hope you can keep up with that, keep up with us there,
0: Tristan, Thank you so much for talking to us here over at Black Girl Nerds. I really appreciate it. You're doing fantastic work over there, and um it it's really great to just kind of learn something new about the uh, photography space, the stock images space. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we don't really know a whole lot about these things when it comes to companies like Getty Images. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm glad to have explored uh, this, uh, you know, this with you today on on the podcast. And and just thank you so much for sharing your voice and sharing your. Your words of wisdom with us. It's really appreciated. It was
1: absolutely my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Jamie. And I hope that for you and your listeners, we were able to demystify (laughs) a little bit (laughs) of the stock photography industry for sure. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you.
0: The Black Girl Nerds podcast will return in just a moment. The Hyundai Elantra is a tech savvy, smooth operator designed just for you. The Hyundai Elantra is a compact sedan with available class-exclusive features like a digital key that unlocks your car with your phone, and a 10.25-inch infotainment touchscreen along with dynamic voice recognition that will let you control the radio and adjust the temperature with your voice. For the young at heart who like to drive smart, Introducing the Elantra with the most flavor yet. Seamless tech experience that puts your phone at the center of everything you do. Locking, unlocking, and starting your car. Designed for better living without breaking the bank. Learn more at
2: Hyundai.com. Welcome to the Black Girl Nurse Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan. And Missy Copeland said, every time I dance, I'm trying to prove myself to myself. And you know, the students of Archer School of Ballet know a little something about this. So for this episode, I'm going to pull you into the world of ballet because I have been sucked in by a new show coming to Netflix called Tiny Pretty Things. And it's coming to Netflix December 14th. And I'm so excited to have the character Caleb here joining me today, Damon Gillespie. Thank you, Damon, so much for talking with Black Girl Nerds.
3: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really, really excited to be here.
2: Listen, this show is insane. Like, I didn't know. I knew some things about ballet because this show is being called, by the way, everybody, for all the listeners, it's being called a combination of Black uh, Black Swan and Pretty Little Things. I didn't see Pretty Little Things, but I know Black Swan has some scenes that I can't get out of my head. And this show is definitely like that. Yeah. So it's, it's crazy, like the journey that this show is taking the characters on. So, um, you know, I got to start with the basics. Tell us, you know, how you got involved and why did you say yes to Caleb? Because Caleb has a very interesting background.
3: So I was actually I wasn't giving much thought to it uh, just mm. because you get into the point in the you know when you're auditioning all the time and you know you can't really get attached to a character or a project um, at least in a deep level because you 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 know it kind of leaves you to the point where you could get really hurt and let down if you don't get it um, but once I did actually you know book the role. Um, I remember when we were doing our, uh, our, te- our, uh, camera test and yeah. I asked him if I could make him from the South because I'm actually from the South. So, oh, nice. yeah. yeah. And so I was like, uh, you know, I would love to, he was like, yeah, try it out. And I did. And then when I fi- finally booked the role, I was like, great, I guess I'm moving to Toronto for a little bit, which is wonderful. I've never been. And then as we were going yeah. the stuff like, you know, developing the character and, um you know kind of seeing what his arc would be uh the showrunner actually told me he was like I know you mentioned something about him being southern and I was like yeah is that okay and they were like yeah we want to bring parts of you to the role and that's actually what made me kind of start to fall in love with Caleb mm-hmm. uh because I'm from the south um all the men in my family uh like the older men in my family were in the military so I, and Caleb comes from a military family so I actually really connected with him uh, because I, you know, I did dance and I did come from a, uh, you know, from that Southern background.
2: Yeah. And speaking to the military, what I thought was interesting too, um, you got, you have like a very uh, uh, physically demanded, like fight scene. That's pretty cool that you guys get into. Um, Did you bring a lot of, um, did you have to train a lot for that scene? Was that was that kind of a, like a was it a quicker scene because it wasn't as much dancing as you're doing like crazy dance scenes that you guys have to do in this?
3: Well, actually, I grew up um, I grew up in martial arts, so oh nice okay yeah. So a lot of the stuff that we we were actually able to get away with a lot more with Caleb because I could do martial arts. So and and that, that was actually one of my favorite scenes to shoot. Um, mm-hmm. It was it was hours of shooting, but it was so much fun because I actually it made, it made me go back to that moment of like, Oh, I get to fight again, you know, <laughs> which is yeah, probably yeah. not the greatest thing in the world, but there's an art to it. And I, I really, mm-hmm. really enjoy it.
2: Yeah. Well, that, that was one of my favorite. Yeah. I have to say that's one of my favorite scenes to see you in. Cause it brought us a little, I also like a lot of action stuff. So I like that little cool moment where we, we take a little step away from the, the ballet of it all and you and kind of get to see the new, the characters in a different light. So that's pretty cool.
3: Right. Right. But,
2: um, also on your military background as well, too, not to go too much into Caleb's backstory so everybody can kind of un- this un- unfold for them on the show, but um, there's a lot of scenes with uh, Caleb and Bill, played by Michael Rosen, which you guys have like very cool chemistry, so much fun to watch you guys go through these different um, uh, backgrounds of story development because you're dealing a lot with race and not judging each other on preconceived notions. What was that like for you to, to play that on screen and, and um, to get with, to work with Michael in that way?
3: Well, I think it was wonderful because you know, oftentimes we we have our own prejudices that we don't address in our lives. Mm-hmm. And um the interesting thing about Caleb was that it wasn't about his race, it was his religion, um because um Nabil actually, you know, Nabil's from France, but he is uh he's a devout Muslim.
2: Mm-hmm. That's
3: what was actually um where Caleb's prejudice came from which I actually really uh, respected because it was showing that everybody kind of has their prejudices. And it's, you know, instead of sitting on them and dwelling on them and, you know, kind of letting it guide how you treat people, it's, okay, why do I think this way? Why do I have these sort of thoughts in my head or whatever? And how can I change that narrative in my head to, you know, respect someone else? and I think it's great because we start to see, you know, that in a different light, not just with um, not just with race. Mm
2: -hmm. And kind of switching um, gears a little bit here, going back to some of the ballet, this show, like even if you're just watching it, I think some of the physicality, like as an audience member, you your body starts to hurt because you start looking at these guys and you're like. Man, they're really gonna keep this dance number going? Like they're really gonna do this, right? And you know they can have a messed up toe, like something is messed on their something's messed up on their leg. It's crazy. Yeah. So what and I know you have a dance background, did that kind of make it easier for you to come into these scenes? And I know you touched on it a little bit, but how long does it take to film um like some of these numbers, dance numbers and stuff that you guys had to do? Oof.
3: No. Um, I don't think honestly, unless you've it, it kind of sucks because unless you've done long day scenes like that, mm-hmm. it is, you, you kind of have to learn by experience. So in, in normal, at least from my experience in the normal world, you kind of have like a nine to six or a yeah, nine to six rehearsal day and then you go home. Um, but on film, you know, there's 12 to 14, sometimes 16 hour days that you have to film and in those, you have to do what's smart for your body.
1: Uh-huh. And there
3: are certain there were certain times when it was like, all right, you get three or four takes. You, you got to make them count, you know, so um, because our bodies just couldn't really keep up with it. It was it's a lot, you know, and, and it's it, it's exactly what you said, you know, doing that so many times. It doesn't matter how good you are how strong you are your body eventually your bones your ligaments your tendons they eventually just can't really do it anymore and that's where you get injury um and we you know we had a little you know we had a couple of setbacks with injuries in the show a little bit but nothing that um was detrimental or that would halt production really Mm -hmm. and our team our cast everybody was really All of us had a had a job to do and we were excited and, you know, eager to do it. So it was long. It was tough. But we did it. We, you know, we came out on top.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's it's like this makes me not I mean, and not to say that in a bad way, because you guys played it very well. But this this makes me take a second guess. If you ever wanted to be in ballet, this this show make you think about it. True. Like, man, just like you can't even like you guys, like there's a so you can't even have a piece of cheese. I'm like, what? I'm like, what's going on?
3: Yeah. And you know, I didn't grow up in the ballet world per se. So when I got older and I started hearing, you know, some of these dancers' stories about how they weren't allowed to have certain things in their diet, or like, you know, it's like, um, you may you really gonna have some fried food today? I was like, Jesus, like really? Meanwhile, I have like some yeah, exactly. of the greatest genes in the world, thanks to my father, and I can eat, you know, fried chicken my entire life and be completely fine.
2: Ah, I'm so jealous, man! Actually, that really makes me want some chicken right now. That's not good. That's not good. But that really does make me want some fried chicken right now. But yeah, this <laughs> this is crazy. Like the the diet and the fit. Whoa! Like you guys got to check this out, December 14th, You will not believe. Like, like I said, I knew some things about ballet, but I didn't know it was this deep. Also, here, I didn't know the drama that you guys are gonna catch when this show's like you will literally be glued for these episodes going on, like every episode. Um, you think you know, but you have no idea and it's crazy. So I want to ask you, um, Kayla, what was the most what was the most challenging scene for you? If you can kind of give us I know you can't give too much away, but what would you say was the most challenging thing for you? I think <sighs>
3: I think most of the the dancing, honestly, like I said, because I didn't really grow up in the ballet world. I did ballet, you know, it was more of a secondary style for me. But for scenes, I think some of the the toughest were probably closer towards the end when Mm. there's a little bit more drama going on and there's a little bit more emotion behind it. Yeah. There's... I love my cast so much and they were making me so happy that getting to a, a place of like heavy emotion was a little challenging because afterward, you know, I would be like, oh my gosh. And then, you know, you kind of want to relieve that. And so you want to go and talk with your friends, but you can't, you kind of have to stay focused because so, you're going to do another take. But I'd probably say like the more emotional stuff that comes along with it was probably the most difficult outside of the dancing.
2: Did you guys have any? Because you mentioned it. Because you got the cast. By the way, has like great chemistry. Just seeing you guys hang out before, like a, a teacher would come into the room, or kind of. You could kind of see that stuff probably carried on out, off camera. Do you have any kind of little funny moments, behind the scenes moments that you remember?
3: Oh my goodness, I have so many. There, are, <laughs> there are different costumes in, um, in obviously there's so many different costumes in the show. Yeah, yeah. Um, there was one day that. Brendan, who plays Shane, and Bart, who plays uh, Oren, oh, put no. on one of the like police officer uniforms and like burst, oh, through, the, um, burst through the uh, what uh, the dance studio doors. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> we're like, Hi there, ladies, and everyone <laughs> fell out laughing. There were that's just like one off the top of my head. Um, but my favorite moments were like all of us going out on the weekends, like on Friday, we had our uh, we had our place called Fresh. It was like this vegan place that we first went to when we first got to Toronto. So continuously went there. And then on the weekends, we'd go to this place called Supermarket and like they played mm-hmm. the press music. And so, you know, we always were, we were always finding reasons to hang out with each other. And I think yeah, that's probably yeah. the best moment.
2: Uh-huh. Well, you just named the places. I've never been to Vancouver and still want to go because just literally everything I feel, I feel like almost now is, is filling in Vancouver. So you just gave me some places that I have to make sure right now.
3: Well, these are, I've never been to Vancouver either. These are in Toronto.
2: So. Oh, yeah. Why am I saying Vancouver? Yeah, Toronto. Yeah. <laughs> but either I don't know why I'm just like, going in Vancouver, making up places that you filmed at.
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, everywhere. Every place is filming in Vancouver, it seems like nowadays. I totally understand.
2: But yeah, I'm definitely going to have to make my Toronto notes after my, and then we'll go, then we'll go to Vancouver.
3: <laughs> yes, I will. I, absolutely.
2: 100%. Oh, and then I want to ask, okay, now this one I got to be careful around for spoiler alerts here, but okay. uh, Caleb has a cool, like a moment where you, I mean, you might fall off the couch or bed when you figure out what he does at the end of this thing here. Yeah. Um, But what I want to know, like your reaction, like I don't know if you can give us a few words, like your reaction reading this in the script or knowing what he was going to do.
3: Uh, I had no idea what was coming, so I can give you my reaction when I read it. Um, Yeah, yeah. It actually was just me going, what the hell? Like, I was really, (laughs) I I didn't see any of this coming. So I was actually in my trailer reading the script because we had just gotten it the night before, and I was, like, finishing it in my trailer on set. And I like ran across to the other trailer to um, uh, Brendan who plays Shane. And I was like, what just happened? He goes, I know, right? And we were just like freaking out. So <laughs> that's that was my reaction to the whole thing. So
2: Yeah. And that's very valid. Yeah. Like I said, you guys definitely want to check out um, Tiny Pretty Things, December 14th on Netflix. Yeah, it is definitely going to have you on the edge of your seat wondering if you might want to take up some ballet classes, like
3: maybe. <laughs> 100%.
2: <laughs> all right so now that we now that we've covered that i want to kind of do a little bit i have a little some past things i want to ask you about because i'm a musical fan and oh, then i got okay. some future stuff i want to kind of throw in here so with the musical people may know you from rise um newsies what i love i love watching a good musical what are something is it like i know it's not easy filming it because first of all, audience we get to enjoy the fun side after you guys have done all the hard work Right. So what are like some little what are like some behind the scenes details that we don't know? Like how like, you know, is there like is it difficult blocking that? How long does it take you to move from like one thing to the other in the in the
3: musical uh,
2: Broadway world?
3: Well, if, if we're for filming stuff like the musicals, they take mm-hmm. so long, especially if you're singing live. You know, there's if you're singing live, mm-hmm. you you can't like blast the music and film at the same time because of audio, so you have to yeah. have an earpiece which and then you have to block out where we can shoot because we don't want to catch the earpiece in the shot and that was we actually were having to do that with uh with tiny pretty things as well because of you, know, you have to get the sounds of the the shoes yeah. on the yeah, yeah. And the re- the reverberation and everything of the room, but for rise. Those, even the, those musical scenes that you would see Mm -hmm. easily all day for a two to three minute scene, easily all day. Sometimes if it was five minutes, easily it would take um, two to three days. Easily. Mm -hmm. Now is it, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say for like the last episode, which is in these musical shows, which is normally... You know the final number or the entire production; those are like two or three days of the scenes that you have to film, and then the rest of it is all right. Let's go to the theater, and then we'll just spend a week and a half filming a ten-minute scene. They are incredibly tough.
2: Yeah, that's crazy. Now, does the music like I know for us we love the soundtracks and just singing the songs over, but does the music get annoying that it get caught that it gets caught in your head? Like for how long those scenes are? Yes. <laughs> I always wanted to ask somebody like doing musical stuff on Broadway, like how annoying that is. Cause we all love it. Like we'll go out and buy the soundtracks to so, like whatever.
3: Right. Uh,
2: and we're like loving it. But I feel like I feel bad for you guys. I'm like, I know they had to listen to this at least a good like 20 or more times.
3: On Broadway or when we're doing it live, you, yeah, when you, when you are learning it and doing it, that doesn't get annoying. It gets annoying mm-hmm. after about month two or three. Because okay. and it's not annoying. it's just like you know, there's only so much you can listen to
2: exactly. You know, yeah.
3: there's a place for us from West Side 14 times or <laughs> times a day. There's only so long you can do that. to the point yeah. where I don't want to hear it anymore. I just need a break, you know-
2: mm-hmm. And also yeah, when I you get your it.
3: job, it's kind of like, I don't want to really listen to my job every day.
2: Yeah, yeah right 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 yeah it's crazy i always that's really cool you always one of those those little behind the scenes tips because like i said i love good music but i'm like man what the actors must be going through right now to give <laughs> us like this little because you know we need it now these days especially these days give us like that hour or so entertainment it's yeah. like so yeah we appreciate you guys doing that on that end to bring us our entertainment
3: thank you of course
2: um, I do also too want to talk to you on the music tip. Um, you're working on a, are you working on a studio album right now? And, a, and, a, and I've seen that you play six instruments. Is that true?
3: Yes, ma'am. So I, so my studio album, I have kind of taken a break sort of from it. I mm-hmm. wanted the, I wanted to learn more about my instruments. And so I've been taking the time to, cause I've written songs before and I've, you know, I've been, a, have you know, I've enjoyed my lyrics that I've written. But I want to really break down how a song is written and you know, study jazz music so that I can bring something that represents me. And it's also fun and impressive to hear and play. Mm-hmm. And so I've kind of taken a second to learn about my instruments and what it takes to write a good song in my way. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to put out an album within either next year or early 20, uh, 22. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah, that's where it is with the album, but yeah, that'd be cool. Uh, I mean,
2: I bet, and I bet you have a lot of material too with all that's going
3: on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A lot of material. Um, and, but I wanted, you know, I really want to take my time with it and have something that represents me and you know where I came from. Um, and just, you know, hopefully it'll connect with people, but, that's that's where that is. And the six instruments part, it depends on if you count bongos and congas as to, as separate instruments. But if you don't and you just put them with percussion, then I play four instruments comfortably, which are guitar, bass, piano and drums. I mean,
2: for the bongos and the congas, I just can't, I can't believe you play them. So, I mean, I don't really know <laughs> what number I'm going to count them on. I just think that's cool. I would love to learn how to play those things, the, the, especially the congas. like I would love to learn how to play
3: those. Right. I have you know, and it's more it's it's one of those things where um, you know, if you've if you've if you've made like if, you know, if you're in the uh the lunchroom and you're just kind of like making beats on the table, that's kind of where mm-hmm. it, where it comes from on the bongos and congas as well. That's where you mm-hmm. start. But I also would love to, you know, take some time and dive into really playing that instrument the way I've done guitar and piano this year. I've really buckled down on that. I've I've never been able to do like a piano or a guitar solo my entire right. life. And I've like nailed four of some of the greatest guitar solos ever written. So oh, that's dope. Yeah. That's dope.
2: yeah. Anytime you can like, this is going to be a cool album then We can't wait. Cause anytime you, you have somebody that's serious about like nailing down the instruments and not like, Oh, okay. This sounds a little cool. You know, sometimes right. you pull on auto tune or something. You're like, okay, now I can, now I'm going to release it. So it's going right. to be cool to see you like get down on the instruments. So that will be dope. Um, all right. So my last question to nerd out with you on, um, I saw on your IG you had a Star Wars Galaxy Edge picture. Now, this is where you know, I'm gonna go, I make sure I say pre-COVID, you yeah. know, when it was still, still easier to get in and out of Disney theme parks. So basically I look for any reason to ask people have they seen The Mandalorian? I just wanna talk about the Mandalorian. That's that's really what it's all about.
3: Gotcha. Um I've seen season one. I haven't started season two yet.
2: Oh um, man, well, you're gonna love season two then when you start it.
3: Okay, because I cause season one was awesome. I love season one. And Mm -hmm. I didn't, I was, I didn't grow up a Star Wars fan. I grew up like enjoying it, but not really knowing it. And right Mm -hmm. before the pandemic, I, I watched all of the, um, the prequels and the originals. And then I started the Mandal and then I finished the Mandalorian and started Clone Wars. So I've kind of, I've kind of been trying to really indulge my inner nerd on that. Um, so I'm excited to see season two.
2: Yeah, I haven't seen Star Wars yet. I heard good things about that. But yeah, I was the same as you. I wasn't a, like, you know, everything, Star Wars, everything huge. You know, I had a respect for it. And then when I, the Mandalorian totally changed that. When I saw the first season, I was like, maybe I need to pay more attention now. Right. I started looking exactly. At
3: Star Wars. That's exactly what I was thinking. I'm like, maybe I should really, really, and, you know, go back and see what I missed. Right. Yeah, it's
2: crazy. But yeah, so yeah, it's, it's yeah, like, you're really going to like, I won't say anything to spoil it, but yeah, you are really like season two.
3: Oh, I'm so excited. I have to watch it now. I'm so excited now. <laughs>
2: and, and, no, and then I'm going to check out Clone Wars because I've heard cool things about that, too, and I haven't had a chance to check it out.
3: It's long, but it's it's good. I, I, have, I haven't watched it in a minute, but uh, the first few episodes that I have seen are actually pretty good.
2: All right. Well, you know, I really appreciate it, Damon. Thank you so much for joining me. And we cannot wait to check out Tiny Pretty Things. Thank you so much um, 14th, everybody.
3: Thank you very much for having me.
2: And you guys stay safe. Bye.
3: Bye.
0: The Black Girl Nerds podcast is produced by Jamie Broadnax. The opening theme song to our show is written and performed by Samus. Various instrumentals are performed by Samus, Sky Blue, and Shubzilla. You can find various episodes of the Black Girl Nerds podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Audioboom, Google Play Music, and Spotify.